morning, everyone. Glad uh, everyone could make it safely uh, through this crazy, crazy weather. Um, it's our final Sunday, as mentioned by John, uh, before Wintercon, uh, Born of God, which is the theme of Wintercon this year. And that also means that today is our final sermon in our series, uh, I Promise, uh, which has been taking us through uh, the meaning of baptism. You know, what does baptism mean? And we're going to have our baptism service on the first Sunday of August. So do uh, mark that in your calendars. Uh, registrations for baptism are now open, um, but we'll be closing by the 24th, which is two Sundays away. Uh, this gives me a little bit of time to get in contact with you. Um, please do register early, as I will be looking to get in contact with you to talk through baptism. And the registration form is available on our link tree, uh, which is available via the QR code, which will uh, come up a little bit later. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll get straight into the sermon for today. Uh, Father, you're worthy of all worship. Uh, we look to you, God, and we recognize uh, your hand of grace upon our lives, Lord, uh, when we were as senseless animals rather than your children. And yet, you brought us near to you by the blood of your son, Jesus. For that, we're grateful. For that, we are eternally thankful. Uh, for that, we gather together in community to glorify you. We pray, Lord, through the preaching of the word this morning uh, that you would illuminate the Bible to us, God, uh, that you would reveal to us your truth, that you would help us, Lord, to recognize uh, the way that you graciously act through your baptism, uh, through the way that you come and save sinners. God, would you be with us? Would you guide us? Give us great wisdom that we might understand and change us by the work of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, help us to love you beyond all things, God. Ignite that heart of love inside of us. And for those of us who have known your love but have lost it somewhere along the way, would you help to rekindle that love for us that we might be able to seek you and love you and worship you on high. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we have been looking at the question of who's responsible for keeping the promises of baptism uh, since week one. And we saw in week four that it is God. Um, it is God who is responsible for keeping the promises of baptism. And over the course of this series, uh, we can kind of see how this came about. And so a bit of a summary for you guys. So uh, God is the one responsible for the covenant of grace extended to Abraham, Israel, and the church. Uh, and we see the continuity and the unity uh, between the circumcision and the baptism. So baptism continues uh, to be an initiation into the covenant community, uh, much in a similar way to uh, circumcision. And it's also a setting apart for the world to know uh, the God that you belong to and a union with his people. And in week two, we looked at how God the Holy Spirit is the one who more fully declares and seals the promises of the gospel to us through the sacraments, uh, which means that the sacraments are not tied to the time uh, that they were performed. And so uh, whenever you are baptized, you know, that part is actually a very little consequence. Um, nor is it tied to the faiths of the pastor who performed the baptism or even your faith at the time of the baptism. God's given us an example. Um, he's given us the promises and he's, he's given us the commands to baptize and to be baptized. And then week four was the big one where baptism is about what God has done, not about what we are qualified to do. And from there, we looked at how God has given us the gift of community 
Uh, and this is evident and necessary in the sacraments that we take part in, uh, one of which we took part in last week. And finally, last week, we looked at how uh, God has gifted us ways to teach and raise our children uh, so that the future generations might hear uh, about all of these things and might learn about uh, them in unforgettable ways, in ways that are repeatable, in ways that become uh, ingrained in us with the hope that God would keep these promises for them just as he did for us. So because of all of these things, baptism is now to us not only a public declaration of faith. You know, to say that it's only this would be reductive of all that baptism is and all that God does. Not only is it a rich celebration, to limit it to this would cause us to believe that we've arrived at an ending of something. We've arrived at uh, a celebration of a graduation when really it's an initiation into the community. And not only is it a communal proclamation, because to say it's only this would remove the power of God and what he does through the baptism, what he actually accomplishes through the baptism. Now, all of this comes together to remind us and to reiterate to us that God is the one who says to us, I promise. And we see this so strongly in this passage from the book of Acts this morning with the Apostle Paul's testimony, uh, which John read to us about encountering the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road. Now, who is the man that's being talked about, that's talking about being baptized? You know, when you read through this passage, who is this person exactly? We looked at the change in the Apostle Paul's life. If you were with us over the last year, uh, we looked at it back in January last year. Uh, but read on the screen with me, Acts 7, 58 to 8, 1. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, him being Stephen. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. It's a euphemism for he died. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against a church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. No wonder Paul is concerned in our passage this morning about how he'll be received by the church. The highlighted parts on the screen there, they refer specifically to the apostle Paul, the one that we're looking at today, born Saul of Tarsus, and he played a huge part in the persecution and murder of Jesus' disciples. And we see this in, in that passage right there. We as readers of the Bible, though, sometimes we skim past this kind of section. You know, we think very little about the glorious transformation that's taken place in someone like the Apostle Paul. But everyone has a past. Every single one of us in this room has a past that has been changed. The challenge that gets presented to us in the book of Acts, when we look objectively at the events that occurred with Saul and Stephen, with Saul and the churches, all the way up to the point where the risen Jesus met Saul on that road to Damascus. The man who stood agreeing to the killing of Stephen is now testifying to us about his baptism. The type of person that God has given the promises and the gift of baptism to 
is one that is not deserving of the promises of baptism. When we look at it objectively, the type of person that receives the gift of baptism is not the type of person that deserves the gift of baptism. He's a man who had no concept of the reality of Jesus as a son of God. What idea did he have about Jesus? He didn't think of him as the son of God. When people testified about him being the son of God, he had them killed. He called them blasphemers. He was a man so zealous about his own beliefs that he persecuted and participated in the killing of Christ followers. And this is the man that the Lord appeared to, brought salvation to, and then sent Ananias to, who told him, get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When you think about baptisms in the modern day, when you think about how our church might do baptisms, who is the type of person that you expect to be standing up here, being baptized, or even the one doing the baptisms? You know, there are times when we believe that we aren't good enough to receive God's grace to us. Do you ever go through this? You know, in the morning, you might be looking at yourself in the mirror, thinking about what happened last night, thinking about what happened the last year, whatever it might be, and you think, am I worthy to step foot in the church this morning? There are times when we believe that we aren't good enough to be baptized. We'd be correct in our estimation, but we're wrong in the way that we respond. We're correct when we say we aren't good enough. But if we're right about that, then we're also right, surely, that God is all good and we don't measure up to his standard. And yet, his ways are higher than our ways and he chooses us. Certainly then, it would be the only logical response to receive God's grace and mercy rather than to reject it. It's pride masquerading as humility which says we're gonna wait until we're good enough for God. Do you ever go through this thought, like I'm gonna wait until I'm good enough for God. I'm gonna wait until I'm a good enough Christian to serve. I'm gonna be waiting until I'm a good enough Christian to be a part of the retreat, to get baptized, whatever it might be. Number one, it's an unstated belief that we know better than God, that we know ourselves better than the one who created us. Number two, there's a misplaced confidence that one day we'll actually work ourselves into God's good graces. Like somewhere along the way, we've decided we are gonna be good enough one day. Number three, it's a miscalculation as well, because we believe that all of our bad outweighs all of God's good. Ananias' command to Paul shows us the right way to respond to God's goodness. Notice here, God is the one who always initiates. Without him, we have no faculty in us that would seek him out first. We have nothing in us that would seek out God first because all of our ends are sin. Even the way that we rationalize with ourselves about seeking God are tainted with sin. You know, we 
In false humility, we go through all these different things. So Ananias tells Paul what he must now do in response to God's grace. And Ananias, in doing this himself, becomes the bridge for Paul to be initiated into the church through baptism. You can imagine that the church might have hesitated to welcome Paul in with open arms, considering who he is. Like, we read this part of scripture and we think about Stephen and, you know, him being attacked and killed and Paul approving of this. Put it in a modern context. What if someone, for whatever reason, came to North Rocks and killed me and then they took the stage and they were baptized in front of you and then they're like, I'm going to go on to be a pastor now. How would you feel? How would you respond to this? Hopefully you feel a little bit sad, Okay. But as a brother in good standing within the church, Ananias can testify to Paul's genuine change before the community. Ananias has been a part of this church. People know him. People know he's a brother in good standing. And here he is testifying on behalf of Paul, saying, I'm going to baptize him because I genuinely believe him. I think he's had a genuine change. And through baptism, Paul is received into the fellowship of the body, And perhaps you can imagine now, if you're a member of the community here, that one day you might testify to the genuine change that you see in one of your fellow brothers and sisters that you invite along. Maybe Ananias' question, why are you delaying, could be asked to those of us who have been here, who have seen the Lord's goodness in our lives and have not yet responded. What are you waiting for? God has reached out first to Paul despite who Paul had proven himself to be all of his life. It's no different in our own baptisms either. God is the one who reaches out to us first. You didn't choose him, he chose you. Because God's ability to save far outstrips our lack of ability to uphold our own meager obligations, our own promises to obedience. His grace and his love eclipses our temperamental feelings towards him. The things that change day by day inside of us, they're never changing inside of God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is what enables our baptism. Not what we're qualified to do for him by making all sorts of deals with God or placing burdens on our backs that we can't possibly carry. Let me ask, how many of you have been baptized already, whether as infants or as adults? Yeah, many of you, right? And what type of person, you don't have to answer this out loud, but think to yourself, what type of person were you before baptism? Who did you become after baptism? Was there such a significant change that you can say, I am now without sin? Think about this as you stand before the Holy Spirit this morning. This is the God who knows not only every action that you've taken or will take over the course of your life, but every thought, every inclination of your heart, and all the quiet things that you think about when no one else is around. All the things that not even your spouse, not even your parents know about. I know who I was prior to baptism. 
Okay, I've shared with you the baptism photo before, photo from 22 years ago. I can't believe it was that long ago. I know the type of person that I was at the time of my baptism, and I know the type of person that I was from that time of baptism until now. I love God, but I fail Him daily. This is just a reality. You know, I still fail Him daily. My days are filled with the confession of sin and repentance because my Father's patient. He deals with me, He disciplines me, but He loves me beyond all things. It didn't change who I was before. It didn't magically make me a sinless person now. I still go through my cycles of sin, just like the rest of everyone else here. But what happened with the baptism? It was an acknowledgement that God is the one who saves sinners. That it's God who gives the grace. It's God who makes the promises that count. Titus 3 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It was his mercy that saved us, not our qualifications. So what Jesus Christ did makes a way for us. He was our substitute on the cross, atoning for our sins before the Father. And this means that he cleared us of our disobedience before God. And even though we're still inclined to all evil, God, beyond any sense of our own merit, because of his grace and mercy, imputes Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness to us when we repent and believe in him. We are still with sin, and yet the overlay on top of us is Jesus Christ's righteousness. So all throughout the series, all throughout every baptism ever performed in history, including yours, it's been God saying, I promise. Reaffirming to us through this unforgettable sign, allowing us to participate in the sign, sealing these promises to us through these sacraments, even when we've let go, even when we feel like we've regressed or fallen apart in our faith, he's been there holding on to us. Even when we have known that we brought disgrace to his name by our daily sins and thoughts. He has reiterated, I promise. When I think about God saying that to us, saying I promise to us, there's a particular song that I think about, it's a Christian song, in it the lyrics say, I've never heard a sweeter voice, it made my aching heart rejoice. And I think it takes some of us a little bit longer than others to get to the end of ourselves and to recognize we're not gonna make it on our own. We need help to find that we're really desperately in need, that we're beggars in a desperate situation and yet God is here offering a way And when we truly hear his voice, there's nothing sweeter. When you hear God telling you, I promise, my prayer for you would be that your heart would rejoice. That if you haven't heard this call yet, that you would hear it and draw near to him. 
that you would want to listen to more. If you have previously heard his call, if you have been baptized, then my prayer for you is that you would recall his voice and rejoice once again. So why does God do this? Why does God promise us these things? He doesn't have to. Like, need I remind you, we were enemies of God when he saved us. But look at Paul's testimony, Acts 22, 19 to 21. But I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. He said to me, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up until that point in Acts, it feels like Paul was an antagonist. Paul was kind of the big evil character in the book of Acts, opposing witnesses like Stephen, those who testified of Christ. But now, Paul is standing in Stephen's shoes. Paul has taken Stephen's place as a witness, showing in an unforgettable way how gracious Jesus Christ is, how God has intervened in his life. This means that when Stephen's blood was shed as he was martyred, which, you know, by the way, is a Greek word for witness, the fruit of Stephen's blood is Paul coming to faith. When Stephen's blood is sacrificed, the fruit of it as it drops to the crown is Paul coming to faith. And the fruit of Paul coming to faith is now the gospel of grace going out to the Gentiles, of whom you and I count ourselves. So why does God do this? Why does God save us? What's the fruit of God's promises declared over your life or over your baptism? I'd like you to consider that. Can you now, in the giving of your own life, not only be baptized, but baptize others? Can you bring into the family co-workers and co-heirs in the creation of a new way here at New Life. How about you join with me in prayer? Let's spend five minutes just reflecting. Reflect if you have been baptized on your own baptism, on what it is that God now calls you to, If you haven't yet been baptized, perhaps wrestle with God on that. And if you have not yet known God, reflect upon what was preached today. Ask God to reveal himself to you that you might know him. And then I'll pray for us at the end.
Father, we come before you, the maker of all of these promises, the keeper of all these promises, the only one who's trustworthy, the only one worth following. We want to hear from you, God. For those of us who have never heard you before, who have never encountered you, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them, that you'd help them, Lord, to lower their weapons, to lower their defenses, and to come to you, to embrace you, to recognize, Lord, that you're the only one with the truth of salvation. And for all of us, God, would you help us to embrace you? Help us, Lord, to lay aside our arrogance and our pride, our belief that we know ourselves better than you know us, our belief that one day we'll get there on our own works, our belief that we're too bad for you. And help us instead to receive your grace. You have only good gifts for us because you are a good father. Would you help us, Lord, to open our hearts to you, to receive you, to be transformed by you. Lord, we're, we're on the road to WinterCon. We're on the road to knowing what it is to be born of God, to live as children of God. But before that, we recognize that we're filled to the brim with your promises. New life is full of your promises. And you're aching, you're waiting for us to receive your promises, for us to take your hand, and for us to follow you. We want to know you the way that you know us, and we want to love you. So would you be with us? Transform our hearts, give us hearts of commitment towards you, and yet help us recognize that you're the one who holds together our promises. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.